Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to week number one of Scent, our brand new series through the book of Acts, uh, one of the most important books really in all of the Bible. Uh, throughout this fall, we are going to begin to work our way through this book. We're not going to make it uh, this year, so we're going to take a few weeks off for the holidays, come back again in 2018, finish sometime next year. And uh, we are just right now in a very exciting time in the life of our church. You know, as I look around and see what God is doing, I really see so very much potential. Last week, maybe you were there in the afternoon after our picnic in the midst of that heat. We climbed into the pool uh, there at Dr. Powers Park, and we saw 29 people baptized, professing their faith uh, in Jesus Christ, and we're rejoicing in that. Uh, Today, uh, during the services we have, you may not know this, but almost 500 teenagers and children are going to be hearing God's word and going to be loved by volunteers and going to be connected into friendships with other uh, people their age. God is is doing so many great things there. Uh, We are now uh, in our 15th month of next gen. Uh, We have been sacrificing and praying and giving. We hope to break ground soon on our new auditorium and I hope also to give you more news on that very, very quickly. Uh, But it's just exciting to see all the ways that God is working here. And really, all of that feeds into why I'm so excited to begin this new series through the book of Acts, because Acts is about the church. It's about the life of the church. It tells us the the story of the birth of the church almost 2,000 years ago. Acts tells us how God created a new humanity through the death and the resurrection of his son. And it tells us how God sends that humanity, those people, his people out into the world so that everyone can know who he is and what he's done for us. And part of what I'm praying that God will do through this study is that he will reintroduce all of us to his vision for the church, what the church is to be like, what it means for us to be the church. You know, really, we talk about coming to church and going to church, but really, that's not true if you want to press down to the bottom of it. Really, we are the church, and we need to begin to think like that. So uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with this, I think, uh, for uh, one of the reasons. Acts is one of my favorite books. I think it is for many of you as well. Have you noticed there's really no other book like it? It's just this book full of adventure, uh, human drama, It's got danger, it's got suspense, it's it's got travel to exotic places, lots of things going on in the book of Acts. And I want to just give you real quickly as we we jump in this morning, five important facts about Acts, just some things that'll help you to understand the book itself. And the first one you probably know, but I want to make sure the author is Luke. And Luke is a physician. He's a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. We're going to learn more about that as we study Uh, Second, you need to know that it's crucial to recognize that Acts itself is part two of Luke's writing. In fact, you might uh, really think of it as Luke's dash Acts. He, uh, when he set out to write, he wrote two pieces of material, two books as we know them today. And the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are inextricably connected to one another. Uh, In fact, Uh, Out of that, we we know that Acts plays really a a unique role in the New Testament. 
Uh, maybe you know this already, but the New Testament opens with four Gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and then most of the rest of the New Testament is comprised of the epistles. Now, let me be clear on this. Some people get confused here. Some people think the epistles are the wives of the apostles. That's not true. Um, the epistles are actually letters. I know it's a bad joke, but <laughs> that's all I got at 8 o'clock in the morning, you know. Um, these are actually letters written from Christian leaders to Christ's followers in the early church. And then right in between that, the Gospels and the Epistles, is the book of Acts. And Acts really connects everything together. Think of how little we'd understand about the Epistles if we didn't have Acts. So it's very, very important. Another fact that I want you to know, it's just kind of on uh, this maybe interesting trivia side, but it, it tells us something, is that Luke and Acts are the two longest books in the New Testament, if you go by the words and the verses. And put together, Luke and Acts comprise 27% by volume of the New Testament. We, we tend to think Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Well, in terms of numbers of books, he wrote 12, but his books being shorter only make up about 23% of the New Testament. So in reality, Luke, this Gentile, this physician, he's the one that gives us more of the New Testament than any other single person. And then fourth fact I want you to see is just a reminder that Acts is our record that we have of the early mission and history of the early church. And it, it comprises events that were taking place approximately between A.D. 30 AD 62, we're not totally certain about the beginning and ending dates, but those are pretty close. And out of that, Acts really is a book of firsts. So all kinds of things happen first in the book of Acts, like the, the first permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is followed by the very first church congregation of believers, which is then followed very quickly by the first potluck supper. And I'm not joking, that's actually true. Um, it's then followed by the very first church fight. And I don't know if there's a connection between those, but that really happens. It's then followed by the very first church organization, how the church is run and, and led. Uh, the, we have the first martyr. We have the first Christian missionary. We have the very first time that the gospel it's delivered to Gentiles. Now, I just want to ask, because I think I'm looking at you, probably most of you are in that box, right, Gentiles? Aren't you glad that the gospel came to the Gentiles? It came to us. It, it, we see how it happens in Acts. Acts is the very first use of the term Christian. We're just learning how everything begins in the life of the church, and it's so important that we get this book. And then uh, the fifth fact I want to give you will help you, I think, understand the book. Acts 1.8, familiar verse to many of us, actually gives us a kind of outline of the book of Acts. You may remember that Acts 1.8 says that Jesus' followers are to be witnesses to him. All of us are to be witnesses. And he says we are to begin in Jerusalem, which was the closest place to where the church start. Then they were to go to the nearby regions of Judea and Samaria. And then they were to go to the ends of the earth. And if you look at the book of Acts, it's kind of interesting. Acts 1 through 7 shows the birth and the early growth of the church, mostly in Jerusalem. And you get into Acts 8 through 12, and you see the gospel spreading into Judea and Samaria. It starts breaking cultural and, and racial barriers, all kinds of different barriers. And then Acts 13 through 28, it shows us Paul's travels, first to Asia Minor and then to Europe and Eventually, Paul makes it to Rome. It's really this picture of covering 
much of the known world. And today, 2,000 years later, see, we know that Christianity is the largest faith in the world. Over 2 billion people name the name of Christ, claim to follow Christ and his teachings. And it's kind of interesting to think of that fact when you go back to the end of the Gospels because that's not how it was when Jesus died and then when Jesus was first raised from the dead. And so Acts begins to address this question, well, how did things change? How did the Jesus movement go from just a few dozen people to two billion people? You know, you get into the book of Acts, and at this point we're told there's like 120 people gathered in one room. It wouldn't have been nearly as big as this. So that, you know, I just thought about that. 120 is kind of the number of people that typically come to the 8 o'clock service. So just keep that in mind as we go through this book. God started with a group like this. And the group that he started with, 120 people, was about as um, (laughs) talented, gifted, maybe messed up, have problems, dysfunctions as this room. I mean, you know, just think about it. It It really is true. And That's how it begins, and then the church goes to how many on day one? You remember Acts 2? 3,000 people trust Jesus Christ on day one, but by the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28, in just about 30 years, Christ's followers are in 32 countries and provinces, 54 cities, nine islands. The gospel has made it to the very center of the world, which was the city of Rome. I mean, how in the world did that happen? And Acts is going to help us see. You know, you may be here this morning and you're not even a Christ follower. Maybe you're trying to understand what Christianity is all about. You, you may be here this morning and you've known Jesus and followed Jesus for decades. And maybe you're wondering out of that experience, how can we become the church that Jesus really intended? And maybe you're someone who is kind of looking around and seeing the news and seeing the headlines and seeing all the violence and all the the terrorism and all the racial unrest and all the problems in the natural world, the destructiveness of this world, this broken, fallen world in which we live, and you're wondering, how can I live in a world like this? How, as a Christian, am I supposed to respond? Maybe you're just sitting there thinking, I just need to grow in my faith. How how can I intensify my faith? And I just want to say, you can discover answers to all of that as we study Acts together. This is such an important journey that we're going to embark on. Now, to get us on our journey today, what I want to do with the rest of our time uh, is show you five large themes in the book of Acts, five big, big picture things that are going to recur again and again in the book of Acts. And the headline that I've given to this talk is five ways God wants to change your life through the book of Acts, five ways that Acts can change your life. And I just want to highlight this. As we study Acts, this is not for you to learn more stuff. This is not for you to cram more knowledge into your head. This is about God changing your life. God wants to change your life through encountering his word. He always does. And he will do that if you will open yourself up to that. He will do that if you will yourself read Acts, not just when I read it to you on Sundays, but during the week, if you will make it a priority to study Acts, not just here, but on your own, and we're going to give you help for that as we go, 
Um, if you will be praying through the things that we learn in the book of Acts, applying the things that we study together, I'm just telling you, God is going to change your life. Anybody up for that? Anybody want God to change your life in the next few months? So that's where we're headed today. And here's the first way that Acts can change your life. And I'm going to give you verses before I give you the fill-in, okay? So I just need to warn some of you. Some of you just are so used to doing it the other way. You're going to twitch a little bit if, why didn't he give us the fill-in? But that's important. So the first way Acts can change your life is you're going to gain an intimate knowledge of the most prominent character in the book of Acts. And I want to help you see who that is, be real clear on who that is. So I'm going to read a few verses, put them on the screen. These are all from the first chapter of Acts, verses 1 and 2. Acts begins, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And then verses 4 and 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 8, Acts 1.8 but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So who is the most prominent character in the book of Acts? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. Acts can teach us how to know the Holy Spirit. In fact, some scholars say that they think uh, that Acts would be better titled, not the Acts of the Apostles as we typically call it, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit. They think that would be a more accurate title. Uh, one uh, very important scholar, F.F. F. Bruce, puts it like this, for Luke, as for Paul, the present age is the age of the Spirit. The present age is the age of the Spirit. And for them both, the presence and activity of the Spirit constitutes the great new fact of their time. Think about that. The most important reality for Luke is that the Holy Spirit is now available. The Holy Spirit is now present and active among human beings. And that means that it is now possible through the power of the Spirit for people, for men and women, boys and girls, to enter the kingdom of God, to know God and live in the presence of God. And that brings me to another thing I want you to know today about this most prominent character of Acts. Jesus uh, makes several predictions here about what will happen as he's talking to his friends. He's about to leave, and we'll, we'll visit that, uh, that vignette next week. He talks about how they will become witnesses to the ends of the earth, but then he gives them one more command in verse 4. We read it. Look at it again. He said, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. And what is the command? It is, do not leave Jerusalem, but do what? Wait. Don't do anything. Just wait, Jesus says. Wait for what? Well, as we read, we see it is wait for the Holy Spirit. Why? Why should they wait for the Holy Spirit? And the answer comes a few verses down then where we read in verse 8. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power. Power. And in the book of Acts, we're going to discover again and again the utter futility of trying to follow Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit. 
See, with the Holy Spirit, ordinary people get gifted and get empowered to do extraordinary things. And apart from the Holy Spirit, ordinary people, that's us, can do what? Nothing. You see, the Holy Spirit is the source of power for kingdom life. And we're just going to see this all through the book of Acts. There's actually one place where you see this with some humor. Um, It's in Acts 19, and Acts 19 talks about how God has been doing extraordinary things through these ordinary people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And some other people see this, and some other people who have not received the Holy Spirit, they've not submitted themselves to God. They don't even know Jesus Christ. They see these acts of power, and they think, I want to get in on that. Because that kind of power looks like fun. And so Acts 19, 12 tells how there were these exorcisms going on. Lots of people were possessed by demons and they're getting thrown out. And then in verses 13 and 14, Luke talks about the people who see that happening and they're not Christians. So they decide, I'm going to use the name of Jesus like these people are doing to throw these evil spirits out. And and Luke tells us about seven guys, seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish chief priest. They were trying to cast out a demon. They didn't even know God through Jesus, God's son. They didn't even have the spirit in their lives. And they are saying to these people possessed by demons, to the, name, uh, to the demons themselves, they are saying, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out. And in Acts 19, 15, One of the demons looks at them through the eyes of this person he's possessed and says, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And then he proceeds to beat them up, one on seven, and they leave, we're told, naked and bleeding. You know know you've been beaten up when you've had the pants beat off of you. See, this is a pretty sobering question if you think about it, coming from this particular source. Jesus, I know. I know Paul, but who are you? And the truth is, apart from the Holy Spirit, we don't have power. We don't have power to live in the kingdom. We don't have power to do the kind of things that we see all the time in the book of Acts. We don't have power to do what ordinary people can do through the presence of the the Holy Spirit. That power is available only through the person of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says to his followers, just wait. Don't try to do this stuff on your own. Just wait, because when the Spirit comes, you will receive power. And see, the problem here is, and maybe this is true about a lot of us in this room, we do not know the Spirit in a very deep way. We do not really even know much about the Spirit. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. It seems like a a fair amount of people in the church know some things about who the Father is and uh, about who the Son is. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, they get kind of fuzzy. And so there's all kind of questions on the Holy Spirit. And maybe some of you are having them right now. And we're going to get into those. Like, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean? You know, the book of Acts tells us about being filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? And how do you know someone is filled with the Holy Spirit? And, and what are the indications that the Holy Spirit is at work? And, you know, we see movements, even in our time, around the world, uh, movements claiming that they are this special manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And are they? And how do we know? And then what about speaking in tongues? Is that the sign of the Holy Spirit. And what about miracles? A few years ago, you may remember we had a signs and wonders movement that was going through a lot of churches. And is, is that, 
you know, the Holy Spirit? What's the role of signs and wonders in the age of the Spirit? Now, all of these questions and some more and on top of those, we're going to be meeting these questions as we go through action. We're going to meet them dead straight. We're going to meet them head on. We're going to do them in a week where I'm not here. Jay's going to handle those problems for you. But we are going to meet them dead on, dead on, I promise you. No, no. Uh, we are going to you know, do our best to try to answer some of these difficult questions. But I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to ask a question. I want you to be thinking about this. Is there anyone here? And you're just interested. You're interested in being fully open to the Holy Spirit and receiving his supernatural power to live and to do life in the kingdom of God. Anybody interested in that? So you won't want to miss our studies because we're going to get to know the Holy Spirit as we go through the book of Acts. There's a second way that Acts can change your life, and it's this. Acts can teach us how to live in true community. Now, we're going to talk about community a lot in the book of Acts. We're going to study it. We're going to seek to practice it in our church life as we always are doing that. Because the book of Acts is the story of the birth and the growth of the church. When the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit empowers and enables. It gives, he gives birth to the church. And we're going to see that community is not a vague thing in Acts. It's not some kind of general amorphous feeling of goodwill toward people. Uh, it actually involves some behavioral changes in our lives. We're, we're going to take a look now at a, a series of verses from Acts, and there's a word that kind of runs through these verses like a thread that describes a particular behavior in the community. Look, look at these verses on the screen. Acts 1.14, they all join together constantly in prayer. Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Acts 2.44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. A couple more verses, Acts 4.32, all the believers were one or together in heart and mind. In Acts 5.12, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colony. Now, what's the word that just keeps running through these verses? Together. See, historically, when God moves in mighty ways, when the people of God are facing life together, they don't just go to church. They face life together. They do life together. They, they meet together. They draw life from being together. There's this kind of energy and power that comes from being together. I came across this account um, recently uh, from the early church, not Acts early all this way back, but a few hundred years uh, into the church's existence. And I just wanted to read you a couple lines from it. It's a description of a church uh, in another part of the Mediterranean world uh, in the three and four hundreds. And it talks about what it was like when those people would gather. And these people had a pastor who was very, 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 very famous. People still read his sermons 1,600 years later. And he just talks about what it was like when these people would gather. In those days, this author says, indeed, until modern times, people did not sit in pews when they worship. Instead, they stood. In fact, I'm just thinking because of historic practice of the church, we're gonna have you stand through our entire service now to be more biblical. I'm, not really, I'd, but there is a long precedence for that. And by the way, back then, they preached way, way longer than I ever preached. But then the other part that comes next, 
I'm not sure I really like because they stood or they walked around greeting people and exchanging news during the message. And the description was, it was to such a relatively unruly congregation that teachers spoke. And it says the people often responded to the teaching with applause. That's kind of nice. Or on occasion, this is not so nice, with booze. (laughs) Or with silence, and we kind of know what that's like. (laughs) And then you will think that I'm making this up. But the third thing, honestly, I'm not, booze silence or hisses. And so I'm not really looking to develop this practice in our church, but this is just history. And um, this fourth century teacher, he observed that Jesus didn't have to seem to connect with such ill-disciplined ears. He said, but the disciples always waited quietly and politely until he finished. And so this teacher, by the way, his name is John Chrysostom. He was such a great preacher. He got this second name, Chrysostom. It means golden mouth in Greek. And uh, he concluded his sermon on this subject with with this, this conclusion that all applause should henceforth be forbidden. And this is historically true. His announcement about that brought the house down with applause. Well, I was just thinking, historically, what we see here and in the book of Acts and really throughout the history of the church is this truth that the people of God draw life and draw energy from being together. And at the heart of this new community that draws together is always this passionate desire for glory and worship and praise and and to see God transform us as we together give glory to God. And I want to point you to something that just pictures where we should be heading. It's actually not in Acts. It's in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. It's in chapter 7. And you might want to turn there, verses 9 through 11. As I set the scene, John is late in his life, of course, and he's writing to churches, very specific churches. People often forget that the book of Revelation was not written just kind of to out there. It was written to seven specific churches in Asia Minor. He, he has an audience in mind, and he wants them to see certain things, certain aspects of the vision that God has given him. And this is where he gets this great vision of worship. And there's several of them in Revelation. I want you to hear, hear, hear what he says, beginning in verse 9. He says, after this, I looked. And you, you kind of need to put some space in your mind and heart and try to imagine what it would have been like to see what he saw. And then try to imagine what it would be like to view a foretaste of that even here and now. He says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. And he uses such beautiful words from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So no more racial hostility, no more hate, no more barriers between male and female, no more segregation, no more ethnic cleansing, no more violence, not in this great multitude that no one can count. See, all these people, all of them, they're, John says, they're standing before the throne and in front of the lamb, and they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb, 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. And friends, that's the vision John lays out for those seven churches. He is saying, people of God, listen, this is what God longs for, for his people, for his church to be. To pour their hearts out in love and praise and adoration. And and I just want to ask you, doesn't our God deserve that? And isn't that worth everything that we would have to sacrifice to see that come to reality in our midst? And I just want to ask you, what do you have to do in your life that is more important than that? What do you have to be part of that matters more than being a part of that? See, Paul writes, when he writes to the church in Philippi, that the day is going to come when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And what can people, men and women, human beings, what can we be involved in that matters more than right now helping as many people as possible today come to know the love of their creator, come to bend their knees and speak with their mouths the beautiful reality that Jesus is Lord, to pour out their love and their praise and their affection to him. What matters more than that? And I'm just saying to us Southwinds, I I do not believe that there is anything that matters more than that. You know, I don't really think we've come anywhere near reaching our potential as a community, as a community of faith. Could you just imagine for a moment what it would be like if every one of us who says, I'm a part of Southwinds, And, you know, we have over 2,000 people who see themselves as part of Southwinds. I'm not talking about people that are officially church members, but people who would say, this is where I go to church, this is where I worship, this is my church home. What if all 2,000 of those people, every single one of them, would devote themselves to gathering together on a regular basis, to giving praise and worship to God on a regular basis, What would happen in this room if this room were filled? We didn't just have 120 uh, of you, and I do love you. You're my favorite service. You know that, don't you? Don't tell 9, 30, and 11, please. But what if this room had 450 people in at 8 o'clock? What if we didn't have to have three services? We had to have four or five services to fit everyone in this place, all pouring out their hearts in worship to God, all devoting themselves to serving God, all devoting themselves to loving the people in their lives. You know, God has blessed us in a lot of amazing ways as a church. But I just think we've touched the surface. I don't think we've gotten anywhere near to seeing everything that God would want to do. And so I just, without apology, want to tell you that for us to reach our potential as a worshiping congregation, as a learning congregation, as a serving congregation, that we need to just pour out our hearts and ask God. And then we need to get busy doing the work that God is calling each of us to do. God is sending us. That's why this series is called Sent. And we need to make sure that's the community that we are a part of and that we're living that way. Can you imagine by the end of the year, what if everybody in this room found a friend and brought them to experience what God is doing here? Well, by simple math, this room will be twice as full as it is right now, right? Is God calling you to 
do something like that. In fact, I have a question for you. I just want you to think about it. The question is, who does God want me to bring? And I really want to encourage you. I really want to challenge you to write a name down. Who comes to your mind when you hear that question? If you say, well, nobody comes to my mind, I just say, well, that's a problem. Who comes to your mind to bring? And if you don't have anyone that comes to your mind, then I would encourage you as your pastor who loves you to pray to God and ask his forgiveness and then ask him to bring someone to your mind. And they begin praying about doing that. We're gonna practice community as we go through this and it's gonna change our lives. And then the third third way acts can change our lives, acts can teach us how to deal with conflict and do it in a way that, that builds community instead of destroying it. One of the interesting things about Acts is it is so candid, it is so blunt about the fact that people in the early church were very ordinary and they had fusses and they had conflicts and they had tension, just like us. That surprises people sometimes, right? They go to church and they think the church surely is the place where all the angels fly around all the time and everybody always gets along, right? <laughs> You know, you've been at church very long. You know that only people who never have been to church would think that, right? But Acts shows us that. It helps us to understand that. And I'm going to show you something in Acts 15 in just a moment. But, uh, and you might want to turn there. But before I get there, I want to just mention a couple other places where there's conflict in the book of Acts. You can read about them later. Acts 6, there's conflict between Hebrew-speaking Christians and non-Hebrew-speaking Christians about whether the widows in both camps are being cared for. And those that don't speak Hebrew feel like those that speak Hebrew are taking care of their widows but not you know, the other widows, and they have this problem, and it has to get resolved. Then later on, Peter has a vision from God. Remember that? He's told, this is Acts 11, to extend the gospel, the mission of the church to Gentiles, to open up the people of God to Gentiles. And in verses 2 and 3 of Acts 11, it says that other believers, other people inside the body started criticizing Peter for doing this. Again, there's conflict and tension. Now, look what happens in Acts 15, beginning in verse 36. It says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So they're gonna go where they've been. They're gonna go together and and they're gonna strengthen these churches. But verse 37 says, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because He had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. We read about that earlier in the book of Acts. And then verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. So these two spiritual giants, and they are godly men, full of power from the Holy Spirit. They had such a huge conflict that they separated and says Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, committed by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So just this open recognition, these, the, the church has conflict, the church has problems, and yet over and over again, we are told that people live in fellowship, in one accord. They have learned how to live together as fallible people, as people with sin in their lives, to deal with conflict in a way that builds community, not destroys it. Anybody here interested in learning more about that? Some of you would desperately want to know principles about this to apply to the place where you live at home. 
because you have conflict there and you can't get along with each other. There's so much relevance for us in the book of Acts. Here's the fourth way Acts can change your life. And this is one of the biggest things. Acts can teach us how to fearlessly spread the gospel. Now again, Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I mentioned to you before, I'll say it again, Acts 1.8 is the theme verse of Acts. This is the center of the entire book. It's the first place we see this theme of sent, that we are a sent people. And we're going to be talking a lot about that as we go through this book. And I just want to mention one example. I'm not going to read passages, but I'm going to tell you this story. It's in Acts 17, and you can look that up and read it later. Paul is in Athens. And he goes to this place and he meets with a group of pagans, people who have no idea of who God is and, and what God is about. And he wants to communicate the gospel to them. These are biblically illiterate people. They, do, they just don't know the Bible. They're not, they're not ignorant people. They just, in terms of education, they just don't know the Bible. But they're interested in some kind of things about God. This is kind of like a whole lot of people who live on your street, they don't know the gospel. They don't know what the Bible teaches. And they may even tell you they're not interested. But they're seeking, they're searching for meaning and purpose. And so Paul talks to them, and it's interesting how he puts it into their language. He communicates with them through something they understand. He doesn't even actually quote scripture. He quotes some of the philosophers that they knew, and he's connecting with them by talking to them about something that they already understand. He, he just meets them where they are. That's the point. They are seekers, and he affirms their seeking, and he contextualizes the gospel to them. And what I'm just reminding us today is that the early church was built on an unconditional commitment to evangelism. And you're just going to be challenged as we go through Acts by this, that witness that sharing the gospel is at the very beating heart of what it means to follow Jesus. And if you think, and if I think, that we can follow Jesus and just keep it to ourselves, we don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. That's a real good place for a lot of amens. I want to ask a question. And this is a show of hands thing, so just get yourself ready. How many of you have ever in your life one time at least, held back from sharing your faith with somebody else out of fear or out of sense you might get rejected or out of concern that you might be embarrassed because they'd ask a question you didn't know the answer to or that you might make a mistake, anything like that. Have you ever held back from sharing the gospel because of one of those things or others? It looks pretty much like all of us. Now, um, I want you to listen by comparison to how Paul was received by some people one time when he was trying to share the gospel. He's in front of a group of people. He's proclaiming the gospel to them, and this is what they say. This is Acts 22, 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Now, another show of hands, okay? How many of you have ever had a worse reception than that? How many of you, after sharing the gospel, have had someone say to you, rid the earth of him, not fit to live? I didn't think so. I want you, again, I'm encouraging you in this, 
to write down now where you're taking notes. I want you to name the first person that comes to your mind when you think about sharing the gospel. I want you to write it down. Don't, Don't leave without attempting to do this. You want to share the gospel with them, but you're afraid for some reason. Write their name down. You see, Acts can change our lives as it helps us become fearless champions of the irrepressible spread of the gospel. Here's the final way Acts can change your life. Acts can teach us how to hope in hardship. Acts has a lot in its 28 chapters about the triumph of hope, and and not just any hope. It's a certain kind of hope. It is a hope that is founded in the gospel, and there may be some of you right now, and you're just thinking, okay, all this is nice, Pastor Mike, but my life sucks right now. I'm in all kinds of pain in my life, and I'm not sure all this stuff about mission and gospel and witness. I don't know about this. You need to be brought back, and you need to read Acts, and you need to see how much pain and how much suffering and how much hardship the people of the early church went through while they were doing all these other things we've been talking about. How does that happen? Let me just take you to one place, Acts 28, 30. You might want to turn there. It's almost the very end of this entire book. And before we get to Acts 28, the last chapter, you could read through Acts. Paul has been sent to prison. Paul has been bitten by snakes. Some of you say, I would rather go to prison than get bitten by a snake. Who would show the hand there? That's, that's your thing. Paul has been shipwrecked. And now he's facing death, execution. He is in Rome. And as far as we know, he'll never leave Rome. This is where he dies. And so if you just think about his life in terms of hardship, it's like, it's like he's been going south the whole way. It has just gotten worse and worse and worse. But look what it says, verses 30 and 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Again, he's in prison, house arrest. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where he's going to die. And this is how he responds. You see, the hope that is going to fire us in this series as we study God's word together, it is not a hope that your own little agenda, that you would have a nicer home than you have right now, and that you would get a nicer car than you have right now, and that one day you could go on nicer vacations than you've ever gone on. It is not about fulfilling your little dreams. It is the hope of the gospel. It is the hope of the triumph of the gospel. It is that hope and that hope alone that will take you through hardship, that will strengthen you through suffering, the hope of the gospel. Again, words of a great scholar of Acts says, he says this, some Christians contemplating the world of today are most conscious of signs of irreversible deterioration. All they see is how bad things are in the world and is getting worse. Let me stop you right there. You don't know this. You don't know where this quote comes from, but I do. It comes from 1973. You were thinking, man, he must have wrote it last week, right? So he says, some people look around at the world as Christians. They think it's all getting worse. It's just all going to hell in a handbasket. But he says, others are more impressed by the growing abundance of evangelistic opportunities. It is not surprising that men and women of the latter outlook have always been drawn like a magnet to the acts of the apostles. And then he makes this great statement. He says, the future belongs to the spirit. 
The future belongs to the Spirit. Do you believe that? That's hope. See, I don't know who you thought the future belongs to, and it does look pretty bleak to me too sometimes, but the message of the book of Acts is that the future belongs to the Spirit. The future, your future, my future, the future of this old, troubled, fallen, broken, sad world. The future belongs to the Spirit. And because of the Spirit, the gospel cannot and will not be stopped. The gospel will continue to be proclaimed. And the real question, if that is true for you and me, is am I going to be on the outside looking in or am I going to be part of that in my own life? Don't you want to be part of that? Don't you want to see God work in and through you in ways that he did in these early Christ followers' lives. Acts can change your life, and it will change your life if you'll let it. And I'm praying that it will. Would you bow your heads as we close our time in prayer? Father, we come before you to lift our prayers, and we come, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We, we come before you, Father, in the power of your Holy Spirit, we do not come in our own strength. And Lord, we know that we need you. And we cannot do this on our own. So Father, we ask that you would forgive us for when we've tried to do it on our own. And we ask, Father, that you would reignite in us a heart of passion to see your life in us and through us, your life touching the world around us. We pray these things now, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ, our Lord and our Savior. We pray now by his Spirit and all God's people said, amen.